0: You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey everyone! Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. I'm Greg Wilson here with my co-host Rob Nuhopey. Hoopy, what's happening, man? who? just back from Coalition.
1: Just trying to trying to recover from emails and everything else and busyness. And and as we're recording, this is Friday, February second, and um, yeah, a little bit of news today coming out of
0: uh, Congress. So that's that's fun. Yeah, a lot of a lot of updates. Um, I know we've got staff that attended Coalition. They've been compiling some of their notes from different educational sessions and some of the conversations they had with different folks in the 340B space. So I think in a future episode, maybe the next one, we'll probably have a more in-depth kind of review of things that we learned from Coalition. But you know, real quick, Rob, any you know any insight or or tidbits that you wanted to share, just from your experience personally? No, I, I mean I would say that
1: it was fantastic being at Coalition and and just. Being able to um, catch up with a lot of our um, colleagues and clients and uh, friends, um, our client appreciation event, I thought was really, really fantastic. Uh, the venue we use is, is open. It really allows for a lot of um, people to just network and, and have good conversations, right? Not loud music, not real cramped. And, uh, you know, Aiden kind of came out and kind of ran that for us. So Aiden, I know you're on. wanted to get your thoughts on how you thought the client appreciation event went and, and the coalition in general. Wow. Thank you for that. Um, (laughs) I feel like it went really well. It was nice to meet staff. I don't get to see all the time and get to see our clients face to face. So it was really great to get together again. Thank you. Thank you, Aiden. No, but seriously, Aiden, thank you for all you do. Um, I, I think, I think it was a big success because of you and, um, and and I will say I there were people who did do those stickers um, with with our faces and put them on places. you show me my my face on like eight different things.
0: Yeah, I'm like come on, Seiji, you're killing me over here. That was my um, my fear. I mean, I wasn't there. I fear that there are stickers of my face in urinals throughout San Diego now. No, <laughs> oh.
1: aim here. <laughs> Let's hope not. Uh, but it was fun. Everything was fun. The, the event went great. Um, Aiden just—I kind of really just took care of a lot of stuff for us, and just really appreciate okay. you, Aiden, for that.
0: Awesome. Well, yeah, we'll, we'll get some some tidbits and some some sound bites from from staff that went. Maybe some clients might, If you you went to Coalition and you had something that you thought was really interesting that you learned about um, and want to share on the podcast, please reach out to us. But uh, next time we catch up, Rob, we'll maybe have some staff on to share a little bit of what they learned.
1: Yeah, I was gonna say because there were great discussions around you know ex- expanded patient definition related to the Genesis case. There's a lot of discussions around manufacturers, contract pharmacy, you know, and yeah. what what are what are people doing? Child site registration. That space. Yeah, I yep. heard that was
0: another hot topic. So exactly, inflation, exactly. inflation reduction act. So lots. IRA
1: is a big deal. Yeah, with everything going on there. So so I think the best thing to do there, in light of the Gang of Six, kind of the Sustained 340 Act coming out today, which I think is what we want to spend our intro covering. Because we do have our regular um, kind of podcast topic that we want to uh, get to as well. Uh, so I think what a good plan today is cover a couple time-sensitive things that we want to share, but then uh, then really talk about this Gang of Six kind of uh, Sustained 340B Act. And then, yeah, I like the idea of um, having our staff that, that did attend the conference kind of share their, you know, we, we they were asked to go attend um, certain sessions and, and be able to report back and kind of what they learned and what they heard. And uh, I think a, a nice uh, uh, episode just on that will be good, and so we won't jump the gun on any of that, and we'll we'll wait for that for the next time.
0: Yeah, sounds good. Yeah, our our main topic today is just a continuation of covering DRL items from HRSA audit notices. So we're going to hit, I think, the provider list, which is section four and contract pharmacy documentation, which is section six. But uh, some housekeeping items to start. Uh, We're in the midst of the annual recertification for grantee programs. So if you are a grantee representative uh, from either a a CHC, uh, FQHC lookalike, Ryan White programs, hemophilia treatment centers, Hawaiian clinics, black lung programs, and then Indian Health Service programs those uh 340b covered entities are all up for annual recertification now it started january 29th and will continue through oh i think it's let me see here february got the dates here i had my notes all ready to go and oh
1: i thought i saw yeah through the end of february right january 29th through the end of february
0: yeah, February 26th. Yeah. So if you're one of those covered entity types, you need to submit your recertification on OPACE to HERSA by February 26th. Another um, housekeeping item, this is related to hospitals, and these would be hospitals that were granted uh, eligibility extensions under the Consolidated Appropriations Act last year. HRSA has begun to send out emails to these impacted hospitals, reminding them, particularly those that are in an October to September fiscal year. So those covered entities are going to be filing their Medicare cost reports In February, so this month. Um, If you were granted an extension or an eligibility waiver last year under Consolidated Appropriations Act, you got to pay attention to your disproportionate share percentage uh, on this upcoming filed cost report. And the email that HRSA sent out to clients or to covered entities gives them instructions on what to do. If one, the dish is still below their eligibility threshold, typically means you have to terminate from the 340B program Um, If your dish is going to be above whatever your eligibility threshold was, the person wants you to email them a copy of Worksheet S with the encrypted signature, as well as a copy of Worksheet E, which shows the disproportionate share percentage on line 33 um, once the cost report's filed. And then thirdly, if you're a covered entity that typically files in February, but you have asked CMS to grant you an extension for filing your cost report... HRSA wants to see a copy of the certified letter that you receive from CMS granting you the extension. So a couple of to-dos for hospitals that are filing their cost report this year in February if they have been uh, granted eligibility last year under consolidated appropriations. I don't recall seeing these emails at the end of the year last year, Rob, but maybe I just wasn't working or talking with folks that had... Um, been recipients of these emails have you seen anything like this so far I, I i don't think i did last year so that is interesting um right because
1: it's right people who had different fiscal years so yeah i'm and maybe i agree with you maybe they were there and we yeah. just didn't um we just didn't have anyone who, who received one and let us know but um yeah this seems new to me but who knows so so i guess if anyone out there did receive them for the end of last year you know the november timeframe i uh, love to hear that just so we know that this isn't a new thing, but again, maybe yeah. just a new thing they thought of. Uh, maybe there was issues at the end of November with people filing a cost report not immediately terminating, and so maybe they thought it would be a good idea to remind people.
0: Yeah, the, um, the, the action items, I, I mean, they shouldn't shouldn't be taken aback by what you need to do here. I w- would hope that hospitals that are approaching their co- cost report filing date have a good understanding of whether they're going to be above or below the threshold. What HRSA does include in the email, they say, look, if, if you were qualifying as a dish covered entity before and your threshold or your your dish is going to fall below that 11.75 threshold but you may be able to meet the standards for either sole community or a rural referral center to reach out to opa for technical assistance. I know we've been working with some clients that are going through that transition now but um again the the, the action items aren't uh aren't surprising but folks should be prepared to at least communicate to HRSA if they fall into one of those categories. All right. Um Big, big news update. and I, I think we'll probably come back and talk about this in much more detail after we have some time to to read through the legislative yeah. draft. But what you had shared at the beginning, Rob, is the, the Senate gang of six, and I keep I, I've got like DC Comics on the brain. I keep referring to them as the Sinister Six, which is terrible. They're they're <laughs> not evil. But the Gang of Six um, now have a uh, uh, draft legislative piece uh, around 340B program reform. They're calling it the S- to Sustain 340B Act, um, have sent an email out with a copy of the legislative draft as well as an updated Request for Information or RFI to 340B stakeholders, um, looking for some feedback on a variety of provisions by April 1st to help craft a uh, a-, a legislative bill that potentially could be introduced to Congress. Lots to unpack. you want to go through maybe the different categories of items or topics that they're asking covered entities and other stakeholders to address? Yeah, let, let, if I can, I'll just add a few more kind of uh,
1: intro things that just yeah. so, for everyone to be aware of. So first, it's a 51-page document. I do want to thank um, some of our um, uh, 340B um, partners out there. 340B report, did, if you subscribe to them, did put out a pretty good summary. Um, but you can also read the actual Sustained 340B Act. It is a 51-page draft. And 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 like Greg mentioned, they are it's an RFI, so they, they want you to respond. The response date, I always love it when they pick like April Fool's, but it's April 1st, 2024. So on April Fool's Day, that's the, the due date for any responses to this RFI. And they have an email and it's in the letter. So you can kind of find this information. On it's one page letter. It's bipartisan 340B RFI at email.senate.gov. And as a reminder, it is bipartisan. So I like how they threw that in the name. so make sure everyone everyone knows that. Um and and the, the bipartisan is three senators and uh, sorry, three Republicans and three Democrats. So very, you know, evenly spread, um, really nice. Um, uh, I, I like when they do stuff like that, where they get a group together and they really split it up um, down the middle. And um, and yeah, Greg, I, th- I think we should at least touch on the the various areas because they cover a lot of ground here. And I'll yeah. say after reading it through, it just came out today. Right. So we're all just trying to digest it. There are some good things in here, and then there's some things that we expected that we'd see, and and I guess it depends on what the final legislation is, uh, if that's if it's going to be good or bad or neutral, yeah. and um, so yeah, I'd say we tackle each category,
0: um, and starting with probably the most important one to people are covered entities is contract pharmacy. Yeah. Yeah, everybody's been saying with the contract pharmacy provisions, the real relief that covered entities will experience is through some type of legislative change. We're likely not going to get relief from the courts. Manufacturers are going to continue to tighten things up, particularly in the wake of Genesis, as they, you know, feel that maybe covered entities are expanding their patient definition, they may add additional restrictions. So we really need to codify contract pharmacy in 340B law. The RFI is inquiring about different pharmacy contract pharmacy restrictions that might need to be implemented to pragmatically account for contract pharmacy in 340B. So they're proposing things or just theoretically debating whether or not a cap should be placed on the number, number of contract pharmacy locations per 340B um, covered entity provider. And I think the average was stated in the draft of 12, about 12 and a half um, contract pharmacies per covered entity, um, various uh, provisions or... Um, Uh, Maybe nuances that need to be included in contract pharmacy provisions for different types of provider types, uh, rural-based providers, or maybe specialty medication type provisions uh, to account for the differences between how specialty medications are handled versus regular prescription medications filled by retail pharmacies. Any thoughts on what's being proposed with regard to contract pharmacy provisions?
1: You know, I, the, the good ones that everyone wants to see in there is they want to go back to the twenty ten HRSA guidance, which pretty much means you can have as many contract pharmacies as you want, except for the RFIs asking if it should be limited or cap. Yeah. yeah, yeah, the cap. Um, but the interesting though, they have things that that do probably create more, a little more oversight. One is there in the one of the current provisions is that you actually have to um, annual contract pharmacy registration, right? So every so once a year, my, my guess is like research, you're going to have yeah. to go and confirm or, or re-register any active contract pharmacies. Um, You know, it does create civil monetary penalties, actual CMPs for manufacturers who refuse to sell. Um, Right. Because right now it's okay, what happens if a manufacturer doesn't? Then you've got to, you know, what do you go through the alternative or the distribute this? Oh my gosh, the ADR uh, administrative administrative dispute resolution resolution process. process, Yeah. Uh, Or, you know, because you can't sue a manufacturer directly. So it's right. It gets cumbersome. And so this actually puts some teeth to it. And then another one I found interesting is they wrote the one of the provisions currently says it does require that a covered entity extend patient financial assistance policies to patients at child sites and contract pharmacies. So where today, right, you might have an in-house retail and some contract pharmacies. Your patient assistance might be just through your in-house. This does say, look, if you have contract pharmacies, there should be a patient assistance or financial assistance policy going through that as well. That would be a change in practice for for some covered entities where not all, you know, they might do it for quite a few, but. It, so that's really hard to implement because that means you'd have to have some mechanism to do that. And it's harder external than it would be for your own house. It so it's more operationally why people haven't. But that does create a little bit more work to make sure that you have something in place. So a couple of things I think are good, but but we should be aware of that are going to make it a little more complex to add contract pharmacies.
0: Yeah. You know, one, one thing that I know we've seen through the manufacturer restrictions has been some type of geographical limit. So the, you know, limiting the the contract, your designated contract pharmacy has to be within 40 miles of your hospital or your, your, your covered entity parent location. And and we're not really seeing that in the provisions here. And I think that makes sense. I'm glad to see that that was uh, carved out, you know, particularly for those specialty pharmacies where you may not have a specialty pharmacy within 40 miles of your hospital, and you're going to need to uh, partner with a pharmacy provider that's probably outside of your 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 geographical location. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Second category um is patient definition. And there aren't a lot of details or rigor around how they are suggesting patients be defined, but lots of questions that they're asking for input on regarding how to form patient definition, what factors should be used to determine the relationship between a covered entity and the patient. Is there a length of time uh between visits that Uh, satisfies that relationship. We've talked about the Morford letter, which kind of set two years as the criteria for how frequently a patient needs to be seen in the covered entity area. So they say, look, the the, the 340B statute needs to have a more clear definition of patient, um, but we need your help getting there. Any thoughts on some of the questions that they're asking? I actually think they're really good questions, right? These are questions that I've struggled with
1: um, I, I love the fact they're saying what how what's the length of time right and and I'm curious of that, that I I always feel that should be kind of uh, separated between ambulatory care and acute care but but I think that's a great question so I can tell that they listened to the people who submitted and and they said look out of the 250 plus responses we we went through them and this this kind of document is kind of based on that and I, so I like that they're asking difficult questions one that a lot of people don't talk about is, well, when a patient's served by multiple covered entities, right? When you talk about expanded patient definition, that means you could have three, four covered entities trying to claim the same prescription because it, it gets a little kind of sideways. Well, how, who? What? What determines who gets it? Like, how, how does? How does it? How do you even identify it first of all? But not they're not asking that question. Yeah. But what elements should be considered so then we can back into a compliant way to to manage that? So, yeah. I really like what they're talking about here. I, I think I think it'll be good, and I like that they haven't even tried to answer it right now. This one is unlike the contract pharmacy where they've said, you know what, we are we're going to start with these six, seven, eight provisions. I didn't count it, but and then we have some questions. This is like we're not going to start with anything. We're just literally going to ask questions because we still need more feedback. We don't know what they should say yet. And this so when you think about your RFI response if you plan on responding, this is one you're going to definitely want to put some time into because this this is going to be a big deal. We know this is going to be a massive deal and there's going to be a lot of responses from both, you know, pro um and uh, pro 340b and people who would like to see this tightened up quite a bit. Yeah. And so if you've got some opinions or thoughts on what you think the patient definition should be, this is this is your time.
0: All right. The uh, next category where they're uh, proposing some changes around child child site provisions, Um, the draft legislation provides some criteria for how child sites are determined. But in the RFI, they're asking about something that we've talked about, Rob, on the podcast here is whether or not it makes sense to use CMS CMS provider-based guidelines as a framework for child site eligibility. What are your thoughts?
1: yeah I, I I like that they're at least opening up the door to re- rethink this um and uh so I think it's good and and so this one's a little bit more like the contract pharmacy side where they do have pro- some provisions already added and then they have these RFI questions about, yeah what what should be the framework because they're basically saying, look, here's what we here's where we're going, but should we change? Should we do something different? And you know I, I got you know it's I think it's a good time to relook at it is is that still the best way to determine what a child site is?
0: Yeah, I mean, we've struggled with the discordance between provider-based clinic rules and how HRSA defines child site eligibility now based on a filed cost report, which is updated as of the notice that everybody got in October. Yeah. You know, I think through COVID, there was a more practical approach to um, allowing you to use 340B in your hospital-based clinics, even if they didn't yet appear on the Medicare um, cost report. But now that we're going back to the more legacy interpretation, it creates a lot of headache and financial hardship on, on hospital-covered entities. Um, and it makes sense to move to an alignment with CMS provider-based roles. So um, I think that's a welcome proposal.
1: Yeah. And you know, one area I'd love to see change there, thinking about the way they qualify child sites today is when you don't have revenue for a site, right? One of my biggest pet peeves of the program is you could have a qualified clinic on line 90, and it's a full charity care clinic, a homeless clinic. And Current rule state that doesn't qualify because you don't have charges on on, on work sheet. Seeing it's like it's a free clinic. Yeah, isn't that what the prog- part of the program's intent is to take care of this population? And you won't. I, I got to buy it on whack
0: if I'm a dish. Yeah, yeah. If you're a dish uh, hospital, those that that clinic sits within the four walls of your hospital, you actually have to buy on whack for those. Right, dishes. right. Yeah, so you're you're paying a penalty essentially. Um, by, by virtue of giving that care away to f- uh, for free, so.
1: Yeah, yeah, and, and right, so I think things like that, I would love to see corrected in this process where, um, you know, it's, I, I get why you want charges. It confirms that it is it is a provider-based clinic, but really, really need to think about that. Or if you're a state hospital and you have prison systems, right? You're, you're still trying to lower costs. You're talking about a population that's pretty much indigent at that point. I guess I don't know how to classify that, but they're, you know, the state's providing care, and uh, same thing, technically it doesn't qualify because those clinics that are at those prisons don't qualify because they're not um, – because they don't have charges. Now, I, I know people have done some different things around that with how they provide the clinical care, but but just another area where sometimes things just don't make sense. They don't pass that sniff test or litmus test to me. So now's our chance.
0: All right. Next category, um, I think – you know we we've, we've talked about this and this is expected given the bipartisan support around the need for more transparency in the 340B program. So they're proposing a number of different metrics that would need to be measured and reported by HHS. Um, one of them, I thought notably, was proposing an additional addendum to the Medicare cost report that would define a number of metrics around your 340B savings and in, in charity care. So not unexpected that there's going to be a transparency component if 340B providers can get. Contract pharmacy provisions baked into 340B law, it makes sense that the bargaining chip is, well, we under, need to understand what's where your 340B savings is going.
1: Yeah. A couple of the provisions that are included already, right? So to think about it, and if you want in an RFI, if you want to respond to, one is allow HHS audits of the savings used by the C, right? That's not something they've done in the past. They've stayed away from the financials of the program, yeah. really focused on the compliance elements. And so that'd be different. And then also for the um, information to be published on a public website, right? So another thing that would be critical uh, for people to be aware of what current provisions exist. And that's why it's so important to take the time to read through this thing. And again, didn't quite have, you know, we just came out today with the meetings we had. we were short on time to review it, but really critical elements that we're going to have to digest and determine, you know, what, how do we respond in RFI?
0: Yeah, and I think one important thing to do, particularly if, if you're in a state where there are already state-specific reporting requirements, bumping up what's being proposed at the federal mm-hmm. level here with what you're already doing at the state to see, you know, if there's alignment or if there's some discrepancies between the the different data points.
1: So, and and hopefully once if this comes out at a federal level, right? Typically, federal trump state, yeah. Unless state's tighter, so there is that situation where the federal this this legislation could be looser, but you're still subject to your state's requirements because it's tighter. It wouldn't be the other way around if you remember if the if the feds are tighter, you can't go looser because your state's looser. I believe that's always how I've understood how federal yeah. and state laws work together,
0: yeah all right. Next category is program integrity. So a number of provisions that are addressed that essentially increase the robustness of Har's oversight of the three forty b program. Um, you know, a couple of things that they're proposing here is, um, you know, requiring covered entities to ensure that financial assistance options are, are made uh, transparent to patients and are going to be publicly reported. A few other uh, items here around program integrity. Any thoughts on this category, Rob?
1: No, this is a good one, right? This is one that has been kind of soft um, and typically focused on uh, contract pharmacy. And, and I think this will now allow the program integrity components to be more broad. Than just contract pharmacy. Um, you think about you know the requirement to have that you're doing some self-auditing. My guess is this this helps. Oh it's the goal is to require HHS to provide um kind of regulations regarding audit and reporting procedures. So so I, I think this will be good. It gives them a little more broader making authority for program integrity. Um again, this requires them to do something. We don't know what that something's going to be, but but I do think it's a positive thing that um, you know there's going to be a little bit more teeth to making sure that covered entities are doing their own due, due diligence on their programs.
0: All right, next category is around duplicate discount prevention. Essentially here, we talked about this before, they're invoking the a proposal for a neutral data clearinghouse to help uh, with identifying and preventing duplicate discounts in 340B claims. Makes a lot of sense, Rob, when you look at how fragmented duplicate discount prevention strategies are with various state-specific requirements not aligning with the Medicaid exclusion file often?
1: Yeah, I'm surprised. I, I didn't. I have to double-check and read through the actual document, but in the summaries, I haven't seen anything around fee-for-service versus managed Medicaid. Yeah. I would have to believe the idea here is both fee-for-service and managed Medicaid. Um, I'm guessing by the end that that's something that's going to be addressed, right? That's a big GAO topic. And by the way, I'm trying to talk a little slower. Thank you, Heidi. Um, <laughs> for letting us know that sometimes we I, I may talk a little fast and so I'm trying to slow it down just a little using my radio voice
0: um but uh but well, yeah, Heidi I, tells us to slow down and Aiden tells us to speed up because we've got to get this all out within an hour so uh, we've got two well, two it, com- it, it, conflicting goals here I think
1: <laughs> well Aiden's our producer so I'm going with Aiden on this one um the sorry heidi and uh but but that's i still think this duplicate discount is at the end of the day will include managed medicaid um if it's not already i think by the time it gets to the end because i think that's one of the issues again that that has been reported multiple times by the gao when they when they've reviewed that component duplicate discount component
0: yeah our next section is uh, PBM and insurer provision. So essentially establishing some protections for 340B covered entities from being uh, recipients of discriminatory reimbursement practices. So you're not going to get paid less just because you're a 340B provider. Yeah. Makes a lot of sense. It's about
1: time. That's one thing I'll say about that. So we would have yeah. to go through that because over half the states already have things in place and kind of been wondering why the, on the federal level we haven't done it yet um looks like uh, if providing this gets through um then we'll finally have something at a federal level so states can stop doing it on a one-off basis
0: yeah and then some some miscellaneous uh, provisions tacked on to the end of the proposal um a novel idea uh, creating a user fee for covered entities uh they'll pay pay a percentage of the spread between the 340b and the WAC price um that will be used to fund a variety of different things including you know I'm presuming hearses. You know, program administration oversight, and then the cost of the clearinghouse also described as uh, a a reason for the the user free. Any thoughts yeah. on charging three forty b covered entities a fee to participate?
1: No, and and you know this was part of the Omnibus guidance back in the day. They mm. they right, I I'm pretty sure you've been sarcastic on the novel because they've tried this probably two or three times mm. and they always get shot down, but. It makes sense. Um, you know, there's other things like the FDA setup, where you know, for if you're submitting things, then you, there's a small fee, so they can cover the costs. And so I get it. If you're in the three forty B program, there is administrative costs. There isn't benefit to the government directly, um, indirectly. I guess it is direct to, I guess, on Medicare Medicaid reimbursement. But at the end of the day, um, it, it makes sense. It's a very tiny amount, um, and it'll fund you know, making sure the program can be compliant. And I think everyone's best interest is to make sure that 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 the program is administered correctly so they can be around to do what it needs to do to help take care of patients and, and the, and those healthcare providers.
0: Yeah. Well, we've got some reading to do. Also appreciate any feedback that folks have after their review of the proposed legislation or the, the RFI. If you have thoughts or questions that you want us to ponder here on the podcast, definitely reach out to us. Our email's 340 unscripted at spendmen.com. Any last thoughts, Rob, before we take a break and then talk about DRL stuff? Yeah,
1: no, just that that it's it's February, right? So it's, we got less than two months to, to actually, if you're going to respond to do it, I'd get on this sooner than later because it's a pretty big document, you know, and uh, just, I think as many of us need to respond, provide our input because um, a lot of people will. And if, if it's not your voice, it'll be somebody else's. So that's one big one. Um, the second thing is a reminder, even though there's a lot of positive in here and gosh, this could help the contract pharmacy side or, you know, help here or help there, remember that it, it's the Senate that's, that's creating this legislation. It's currently Senate is democratically controlled. They would have to publish something. It would have to get, you know, even if it got through the Senate, it would have to go over to the House, which is currently Republican controlled. That's an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. And uh, we I, we don't, we haven't heard how um, the House would respond to a bill in its current state or when it, in its final form. So still a lot of, a lot to go, but um, I think the Senate, at least the Senate six and this bipartisan group, I think they have a, I think it's got a good shot. I think they've, taking their time to do it right. So I think it could get some legs. And so we'll see what happens long-term. But just a reminder, even though it, there's some good things in here, it might be some time and it may not get through. We'll yeah. have to see. It's still a wait and see on this one.
0: There's a flurry of uh, discussion in on down in Washington in the summer last year around different 340B proposals. This is probably the one that's got the greatest chance of moving forward. But you're right, Rob, there's a big uphill climb for this type of bill, especially leading into I think is in ele- we've got an election later this year, right? We are in the election year, so
1: that's yeah. even harder. But
0: yeah, going to be a lot of distractions, a lot of other topics that are going to generate probably, you know, even greater interest and greater level of debate across the the political spectrum. So yeah,
1: but this could be a good one. There's pros and cons in here, and I think the pros outweigh the cons actually. So I'm not. Don't hate it, right? Yeah, don't hate it, right?
0: That's a, good, right. that's a good summary. <laughs> yeah. All right, Rob, let's take a quick break. When we come back on the other side, we'll dig into what you need for a provider list and contract pharmacy documentation for hearse audit. Perfect. Sounds good, good, Greg. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendben Pharmacy. Do you wish you had another 340B expert on your team to help you manage your 340B program, but there's no time or budget available to hire an FTE? The SpendBend Pharmacy 340B Staff Augmentation Solution provides you with an industry expert to help manage your 340B compliance tasks. Visit SpendBend.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how you can maximize your 340B efforts. Hey, everyone. Welcome back. Rob, we're moving on to DRL number four, provide a provider list. Pretty simple simple request here, but sometimes a little bit challenging to to put together. So DRL number four is um, your provider list. So there's only one bullet point or one one large bullet point here is a few sub-bullet points. But um, 4A is provide a list of the covered entities eligible providers for the six-month period, including their first name, last name, national provider identifier, NPI number, and indicate employed or contracted including the start and termination dates of employment or uh, contract. And again, they're asking for this in the Excel format. There's a a little note at the bottom of this section here. It says the CE should be prepared to show the auditor proof of employment, contractor credentialing for providers during the on-site or the remote visit. So fairly straightforward, but I feel like this sometimes is a little bit challenging because provider documentation or the directories for which providers are recorded in your systems is maybe a little bit fragmented right
1: it is and sometimes you don't have all the information like you don't know their status you know are they contracted are they credentialed do they just have admitting privileges right so and understanding what all those things mean and does that give them the um authority to actually prescribe on behalf of the covered entity or not so you do have to know that and that's a question that the otters typically will ask your uh, medical staff person so we didn't talk about that at all but yeah. in addition to this provider list when the audit actually occurs you will need a med staff person to be available to answer questions from the auditor cuz they're going to want to know that the the other tricky part is which which you'll find out if you're an academic medical center or a, a teaching hospital the med staff office for your providers is typically different from your residents your medical residents typically that's going to go through your residency office and that that list of providers your your I guess your providers that are going through residency or, or internships or whatever house staff, yeah.
0: yeah, all your house staff,
1: yeah, yep. They're they're different, and sometimes that's a little harder to get that list and an updated list. The other thing that's hard about th- that group is they're all over the place. They're moving from department to department, and and yep. you know, sometimes external, sometimes internal. So that can be a little harder. But the other thing we see is sometimes people have an updated list for every single month for med staffing, but you're talking about a six month window of data. So you have to make sure that you kind of collate that data, especially when providers terminate during your six month window so you know exactly when that yeah. occurs. And um, and sometimes people just have a list of active providers. So now you kind of have to go through all six months determine, well, which one's left and then put a term date on that and add them back to the list compared to the, because you have people added to, during the last month. And so when Greg says it, it's, it's straightforward, but depending on how you collate your list, it, it may actually yeah. be a little more work than you think.
0: Yeah. Yeah, if, if, especially for larger larger institutions, you end up having to stitch together a couple of different documents. So you've got your, your attending physicians, you've got your uh, maybe contracted non-teaching attending physicians, uh, house staff, advanced practice providers. Sometimes you've got pharmacists that have provider status in your organization. They're writing scripts out of an MTM clinic or a pharmacotherapy clinic. They're typically not in your um, physician provider database. So you may have to, uh, again, Frankenstein your provider list from each of these different uh, databases. And again, HRS is fairly specific in what they want. You've got to have the provider identifier info and you've got to have um, start and termination dates. I've had some covered entities upload a provider list without the term and uh, start dates. And HRS has come back and said, no, we need you to re-engineer this document so that you can clarify when these providers were eligible and when they terminated if they're no longer employed.
1: Yeah, I definitely think if you're a critical access hospital or a smaller FQHC, no problem. Uh, when you're a big academic or a big yeah. big FQHC, this this can be a time consuming process because to, to, you got providers moving in and out all the time. And
0: um, so yeah, Ryan have- Ryan White grantee with maybe two or three infectious disease providers probably uh, easier than a than a large right. multi campus uh, academic medical center. But um, yeah, again, you want to make sure you engage your um, your 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 uh your medical staff office individuals. And it may not just be one person. It may be somebody from the med staff office. Um, it may be somebody from the GME office or the Graduate Medical Education Center. Um, it might be somebody from the nursing department that's managing um, HR profiles for or HR files for uh, PRNs and uh, CRNPs and and all of your uh, extended physician providers. Um, share a little bit of thought or insight around the. Verification of provider credentialing actually during the audit. So, we're giving them a list of all of the providers, but for the 60 or so samples that are selected, you actually have to prove that those providers were part of your organization during the time that the drug was administered or prescribed. What's that process like?
1: Yeah. And of course, that's one that you start kind of doing when you get your samples ahead of time because you're going to have to provide that when the auditor's on site or, you know, there's still some remote audits, but it feels like they're mostly on site these days. And uh, and so, yeah, you and you have to provide some document. That gets a little tricky because it's sometimes hard. Some hospitals don't have great um, credentialing documents, but you really want something that appears to be a contract of some sort, um, say contract or credentialing for providers. And that document usually has start dates and when they're credentialed and when that end date is, if there is one. Um, sometimes they like to see them sign, right? They want to see it's an executed thing and all these things. So really you want to make sure that, That's a conversation you have with your HRSA auditor on what they'll accept and not accept in that process. And and of course, during the audit itself, they're gonna talk to them, as we've just mentioned just a few minutes ago, they're gonna wanna talk to the med staff person and understand what that credentialing process looks like and and how often do they re-credential providers? That's a big question they'll ask. A lot of times they say at least every two years, but that credentialing person should know um, that they're gonna get these questions and be ready for them. Um, Because I say just what all the auditors do
0: wanna have that conversation with the med staff person. Yeah. In the last you know, few audits that I've been involved in, we've been able to pull screenshots from an electronic database where the provider's um, information exists. So oh, it could be MSOW or ECHONet, but having somebody from the staff office kind of extract a screenshot or do a screen clip of that provider um, in the database has satisfied HRSA's requirement for validating credentialing. So making sure you get a screenshot of the provider name and the MPI and their um, their their um, active period, and also making sure that, that it's clear that that provider is affiliated with the hospital or the organization that is the covered entity. So sometimes it's a multi-hospital, multi-campus um, provider database. So you need to be able to verify that the physician has credentialing privileges at the actual um, covered entity organization
1: yeah uh, one more um, trick here to to think about that I don't see everyone do when you once you, you know, we just talked about DRL um, number three, once you have your utilization files, it's a good idea to bump if the providers that are all in that file, right? because you can just do a quick pivot table get all the provider names or NPIs, whatever you have, and then bounce that against the the provider list that you're sending to HERSA because everybody yep. should be on there, right? If yep. someone's not on there, whether it's your retail contract pharmacy or your um, mixed use, then you should know about it, right? Yep. If it's retail contract pharmacy, it might be because you're using a referral process or a expanded 340 patient definition type thing. Um, but the mixed use administered drug site, all those providers should be on that list. And if they're not, identify why, which providers aren't. And is there a reason yep. Did they terminate and you don't have them on there? Make sure you get them on there. That'll save you a lot of time and, and headache if those, those get selected during the audit that you have to then explain it. So. Yep. Just one kind of tip there, just just
0: cross-reference those two, two documents. Yeah, yeah, you'll you'll get your samples. Again, we mentioned this before, but a couple of days ahead of time right now. Um, and there may be a, a sample where the provider that ordered the drug in the mixed-use side or in the clean-site side is not on your provider list. Maybe it's an infusion drug where an external specialty provider wrote for Remicade infusion to be given in your infusion center. That provider might not be on your list, and that's okay, but you're also going to need to, during the sampling period, or the sampling process determine who is the actual provider of record for that encounter, and then find their credentialing information in the appropriate database. So, um, great, great tip. Uh, not just in preparation for your HERSA audit, Rob, but using the provider list to crosswalk and V lookup or XLOOKUP against your your utilization on a routine basis helps you identify where you have gaps in inclusion of providers on your on your list.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and of course, I, I probably just a little tip here um, before I get into more consulting side. So this is not just I guess free consulting, but if you do have infusion centers where the providers who write the orders are external and don't have a relationship with you as a facility, that's where you want to make sure that you're looking at your healthcare professional definition, making sure it's expansive enough to cover um, your clinical staff that's caring for that patient in that infusion center. Um, they can qualify. You just have a little bit. There's some I's to dot and T's to cross to make sure that that's going to be okay.
0: Yep. I- any other tips on the provider list? No, again, I think, I think it's it's pretty cut and dry, but it's sometimes it's I think maybe people underestimate the complexity of pulling this together. Um, so this is really something you should have ahead of time, right, Rob? Absolutely, yeah. This is something you should be collating and. And
1: really using in your, any retail and contract pharmacy setups, if you have provider matching going on. So you should be updating it at minimum on a monthly basis. If you're a really large site, you might even update it more often because you want to make sure you're qualifying the right prescriptions. And if a provider terminates and then writes a new prescription, you don't really want to qualify that, especially if they go across the street to a different hospital or to their own clinic. So uh, definitely something you should be doing anyway. Um, and then of course, making sure that all TPAs that you work
0: with have that updated provider list at least monthly. It is a question for you. Just an opinion from from all your experience. Can you envision a scenario where a hospital-administered 340B drug was not associated with an eligible provider? So, a drug given in the hospital or in the clinic. Can Can you think of a scenario where there won't be a, an eligible provider associated with that?
1: Just Just that one you gave. Um, uh, infusion centers that can happen, especially yeah. in, in um, urban hospitals or uh, community hospitals. A lot of yes. teaching hospitals, they kind of have that requirement that it has to be one of their providers who wrote it. But I've seen in urban hospitals that's not true, and that's why we're relying on that healthcare professional. That could also be true for imaging and um, and and you know areas where a patient would come into the hospital get something like an imaging study or um, a cardiac stress test or something like that. Where, uh, but a lot of those cases, you do have some kind of provider seeing it or a radiologist or somebody. So we kind of use that, but there are those areas where external providers who technically don't have a relationship with the hospital are sending patients into the hospital for some type of care that's not directly related to a a provider per se.
0: Yeah, Um,
1: And so those are scenarios that you just want to make sure that your policy procedures are up to date to account for that. Good. All
0: right. Well, I think that's it. Let's move on. Uh, Section five is purchasing documentation. We're going to skip that. So we'll we'll combine this, this discussion to include Uh, provider list. We're going to move on to number six. So DRL six is contract pharmacy um, documentation. So let's kind of walk through what you need to provide to validate all of your contract pharmacy registrations. Six A, provide a list of all covered entity contract pharmacies from the start of the sample period through the date of the on-site remote uh, audit. And for each contract pharmacy, identify whether the pharmacy is utilized or not utilized by the CE. So a little bit more than just an extract of your contract pharmacies on the OPA database. Any thoughts on this one, Rob? Uh,
1: pretty straightforward though. Uh, you know, you do want to make sure that you include everything, including the ones that got termed during that data period. If they got termed prior to your data period, you're fine, um, your sample period. and But uh, if they were active during any part of that, they want to know what's on the list. And then that bullet um, for each one, you know, whether the pharmacies utilize or not, because especially with the uh, manufacturer restrictions in contract pharmacy, we're starting to see more and more contract pharmacies not have anything processed yep. during that t- data period. Which, by the way, is a good time to evaluate: should you even have it as a contract pharmacy? Are you paying a flat fee to your TPA to process it? Are you losing money on that contract pharmacy? Right? So some some vendors charge a minimum per contract pharmacy per month and so if you're not if you're actually underwater in some of these terminate them they're just extra headache for you and you're losing money so yeah. um but That's but a great
0: that, point. Yeah. I always thought that sub bullet point really addressed or was was fishing for pharmacies that maybe have been registered but not yet implemented. Sometimes there's a big delay in, mm-hmm. in kicking off your pharmacy program. Um in the contract pharmacy space. But you're right, there's going to be contract pharmacies out there that aren't seeing any replenishment because of the manufacturer restrictions. So definitely uh an opportunity to disclose that back to Hursa. I, I, I saw you. The, Bless you. I know uh, I muted. I muted. Mute <laughs> you did mute. I said it anyway. Stupid of me. <laughs> <laughs> I
1: was saying like, I was I was I, I could feel polite. polite. Like, yeah. Mute, mute, yeah. Mute. <laughs> Um, but, but I do agree, they are looking for that too, right? So we always tell people, yeah. even if it's new and you haven't started it yet, as long as you're still working on it, it's okay. But if you registered and you have no intention of starting it and it's sitting there, that actually can be a finding um, yeah in accurate OPS database, because person can argue, well, you registered something and aren't using and don't plan on using it. So as long as you're making progress towards turning it on, that's okay. Yeah,
0: That's a great point. I've seen that finding. It's been a while since I've seen that, but yeah, yeah, yeah. like an unutilized contract pharmacy yeah, You know, the HRSAs said, look, hey, it's part of your cap. You're going to need to terminate, you know, termination of that contract pharmacy is going to be warranted. So,
1: yeah, I, I will yeah. say my guess is the HRSA auditors are also using that bullet point. Um, when they're looking at the contract pharmacy data, they're probably trying to make sure that all the pharmacies you have listed do have data, right? Because because yeah. they're also going to say, well, did you just forget to provide data from one of your TPAs? Yeah, you know, yeah. Where, where's this data? Because it's so. I think they want to know that so they don't have to waste time hunting down
0: um, data for a pharmacy that doesn't have data. Yeah, it's almost a proxy for ensuring you've got auditable records, which is a big deal. You don't have auditable records for all of your 340B utilization. You're you're looking at a potential eligibility finding there. So um, yeah, it's a that's a good point. All right, six so, um, B. So for each contract pharmacy. This is where they're asking for the original agreements so the contract pharmacy service agreement and any amendments or addendums that have been created since the initial uh, agreement was executed. Um, there's also some specific language in each of the agreements that needs to be highlighted. So signatures for both parties, um, including the dates, the name and address for each contract pharmacy location that's participating in the agreement, and each covered entity location by name and address or some type of general statement that identifies inclusively that the parent and all child site locations or associated grantee site locations are in the contract pharmacy agreement. So, again, sometimes this is it's a it fairly straightforward request, but scraping these documents together, particularly for a company or an organization that's been in the 340B program for a long time, sometimes hard to do, right, Rob? Oh my goodness.
1: Uh, Yeah. You get, you get the original from like 2010, 2011, and then you've got eight amendments. And I always, I don't want you, I always work back from the the newest amendment to the oldest, right? Because a lot of times, and you're having to look to make sure, okay, did this fully replace or add? Because if you're fully replacing your contract pharmacy table, and it, and you can tell in the amendments because it'll tell you whether you're adding or replacing. If you're replacing, then that new table has to be all inclusive of all the currently registered contract pharmacies. And because sometimes I've seen that where they've missed one in the replacement, but it's still active. And I like, go, oh, it's in this other amendment. I say, yeah, but you replace, not um, added to. So that's going to be problematic. But yeah, just going through just it's a te- if you've got a lot of contract pharmacies and you've been around for a while, this is a tedious process um to go through all of that um, especially since you're you're being asked to highlight those following areas yeah um the so that's con- the contract pharmacies themselves you need to make sure it's accurate and by the way they also look at addresses and zip codes to make sure they're ad- accurate we've even seen yep. if the if the if there's missing like suite numbers that's a problem so they're going to highlight yep. that so be meticulous when you do this um, review of your contract pharmacies and what you have listed on Opace versus what you have listed in the actual agreements i will say if it's if your agreements correct but Opace is wrong there really isn't anything you can do about it except to petition the contract pharmacy because the Opace database for everyone to remember, that's based on D- the DEA listing of how the yeah. address is. So you can't really edit Opace's address, but you can't edit your agreement unless the agreement's right. Then just highlight – I just always make a note for the HRSA audit. The agreement's correct. The DEA is wrong. We can't do
0: anything about that. Yeah. R- Rob, recently uh, through HRSA audits where you've seen discrepancies between – OPACE and contract pharmacies, are those tip, are those discrepancies usually identified as findings or are those areas for improvement? Where, where do you see those falling in the spectrum of, of um, audit um, results? It feels like
1: more areas for improvement lately. There was a period yeah. of time a few years ago where there were actual findings for some pretty ticky-tack um, discrepancies. Uh, so we do see them sometimes, but I haven't seen a finding for the kind of minor issues. I've seen a finding if it's drastically wrong, like the yeah. entire. Entire wrong address, like that's someone else's address, or they moved yeah. and they didn't update it. That can still be a finding for inaccurate opace database. Yeah. Not a financial risk, of course. Um, yeah. it could be a financial risk if you register something you don't have in your agreement, though. That could be a financial risk, or they terminated
0: as well, is the other. Yeah, risk. you failed to failed to terminate it, it gets mm-hmm. struck from the contract, but doesn't get terminated on yep. opace and yep. still qualifies. Yeah. What about you? what what about nomenclature differences so this was a, a hot topic i feel a few years ago where you know if you you had suite s u i t e on opace but on your agreement it was ste or boulevard versus bl blvd what what how is hersa looking at those um really minute differences in how the addresses are outlined
1: i feel like they backed off on that um yeah sort of that that's because it's really ticky tack right uh when an abbreviation versus the full spelling and i think to your point if you if they do call it out it's going to be an afi which for the most part to be honest we ignore but remember there was a period of time you had to respond to afis if you had a finding so then they became really 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 painful to have these minor issues but but since they they backed off on having to respond to afis um, on a cap. Um, it's. I think most people kind of recognize, okay, fine, yeah, we can get that updated. That's not a big deal, but haven't seen those really be focused anymore, uh, at least lately. All right, moving on. 6C,
0: provide the cover page or statement. Oh, wait, wait, of- wait, wait, wait. What? Did I miss something?
1: Well, BC, sorry, oh. 6B, big B, little C. We should yeah. talk about that.
0: Yeah, okay. Oh, yeah, so 6BC is identify the covered entity, location, name, and address, and you need a statement um, that inclusively identifies parent and uh, all CE locations. So child sites are associated uh, grantee sites. Good point, Rob. What, what's what's important about that?
1: So I still see on occasion. Okay, well, what what the best practice is is to list your list your covered entity as parent and say an all. I like to say on all registered child sites in OPACE. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, there's a period of time when we had the immediate qualification. We would say an all eligible locations, all eligible 340 locations. Um, because that was different because you could have eligible offsite 340 locations that weren't registered yet because it's prior to them being on a filed Medicare cost report. Um, and of course, has clarified that. So I still, people still have that at least for the short period of time, because they have the exemption and and that's coming up here shortly where that's going to end. But, um, but, but for, at this point, you at least want to say your parent and all eligible sites. What I still see though, is where someone just lists the parent and that could be Mm -hmm. a problem. I also see where they list the parent and have a static list of all the child sites at the time of the contract. Well, that's a problem because you're going to add new sites. And if you add a new site, now that list is out of date. So don't have something that's not evergreen. Make sure you have evergreen language in every single contract or get an amendment that says the parent and all eligible 340B locations or all registered sites on 340B and all eligible locations. Then you kind of cover everything. It's and whether you update when you update child sites or you have new locations within the four walls or whatever the case may be, they're all covered.
0: Yep. Thanks for coming back to that point. All right, now we're moving on to 6C. So this is um, cover page uh, or a statement on letterhead from the organization that conducted the last independent audit of the covered entity's contract pharmacies. Document needs to include the audit date, period audited, who performed the audit, and the scope of the audit. So this is often where we get involved here if we've been working with covered entities and we've done external audits. So um, this is something that they had asked for routinely, but was just added to the DRL um, within the last, I don't know, a couple of years, right?
1: Yeah, it feels like the last couple of years. They always asked for it, but it was informal. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is they underline independent. Um, yeah. So, you know, you have to kind of de- define what independent is. Of course, I, you know, I, we, we typically don't talk about our business too much um, on the podcast. We like to just provide information. But, um, you know, that's one of the key things we do is provide these independent annual audits and really go through everything with a fine tooth comb for our, our clients. But right. Most of the time, what we're doing is we're taking those first couple pages. We take off some of the, we just focus on those four elements you just mentioned and, and make sure we include what the scope was, the dates, who our auditors were on site. And we just provide that. first has never asked us to provide our full report. Mm-hmm. Um, Okay. I take that back. Back in the day, sometimes they would, and we would challenge them and they'd back off. But it was interesting that they would try and ask. But ever since Bizelle started, they, they're pretty good about just asking for that cover page um, that includes that information, just to confirm that you actually did an annual independent audit.
0: What's it, what's the history here? Because you know they're specifically asking for independent audit documentation for contract pharmacies, but they don't ask for any independent audit yeah. information for other universes. Share a little bit of a background around why that is.
1: Yeah, I, 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 the background is when contract pharmacy became a thing because it was um, sort of external to the covered entity, right? You're really talking about a, a retail pharmacy that's not part of the covered entity and you have a contractual relationship. And so there's this expectation requirement that there was oversight of the contract pharmacy arrangement. So that oversight is where the, what HERSA basically clarified and said, what oversight means is that you have an annual independent audit and you also are doing your own internal auditing, right? So in fact, we're, that's, that's 6D. They're going to ask for supporting documentation of your own internal contract pharmacy audits. So yeah. they they feel that both of those items is what oversight is for contract pharmacy um, arrangements. Um, at least, and historically, I haven't seen someone who hasn't done both in a while, but if you, they are asking for this, da- this information. Typically, if you're missing one of them, you'll get an AFI. If you're missing both, they could terminate your contract pharmacy and issue findings because they're going to argue you don't you do not have appropriate oversight for your contract pharmacy program, and of yeah. course I, we haven't seen it in a long time because all of our clients have have these in place. So sure. specifically, we we haven't. I don't know what happens if you're not doing doing these things anymore because all of our clients do them.
0: Yeah, and now that we we're, we're seeing, you know this. Well, we, we have, I mean, contract pharmacy provisions are all sub-regulatory guidance. So, you know, again, if you're not doing this, what are the ramifications? I think it's unclear right now. But, right. you know, Hers <laughs> is, is, again, continuing to, you know, identify where covered entities that are using contract pharmacies have uh, appropriate measures in place to ensure oversight. But, but Six, I, I i will, yeah, I will say
1: ahead, though, to, I don't know if I fully answered your question. I think I started and I just realized I didn't finish yeah. it. But I think the reason it's only in here is because of that, that, oversight, um, provision yeah. around contract pharmacies where in-house retail and mixed use or administer drug settings. Um, sure. You, you probably need oversight, but, um, because they don't have that language, I don't think my guess is HRSA doesn't feel they can require these independent audits and self audits. Now they do want it's, I think it's like MCO Medicaid personally. It's like managed yeah. Medicaid. Yeah. They want you to be doing an independent audit of your entire program. Cause that's the best yeah. practice. They want you to be doing self audits of your entire program. I don't think there's language in the, in the, in, in the rules and, re- and and statute that can support that because it doesn't yeah. have the oversight piece that contract pharmacy does.
0: Yeah, it'll certainly come up in discussion during your audit. And I mm-hmm. think HRSA expects you to be able to address how you're providing oversight in those other areas. But lack of oversight in those areas doesn't always, w- may not result in any, um, you know, any AFIs type of or findings, finding yeah. unless you're having some type of true statutory violation. So, right, right. Good. So, six D. Um, this is uh, supporting documentation of any internal contract pharmacy audits conducted from the start of the sample period through the date of the on-site or remote audit. So, Rob, what are the types of documents that covered entities usually have to provide to satisfy this requirement?
1: Yeah. I, so, a lot of times, if if as we're trying to figure out what to provide, what the her, the Bazel auditors will ask for is kind of a you know, either an audit guide and also maybe the headers, if you're using a spreadsheet to document your, uh, your internal audits, just the headers of that spreadsheet. And they don't really want to see your actual internal audits, right? Again, they're being very good about not getting your actual data because that's, that's really not fair for you to have an internal QA process and then for them to get that and then use that against you in some way, shape or form as you identify, you know, risk in your program. So they've been really good about that. And I I just want to recognize that as a positive for Bazell. Yeah. And uh, so you're really just pr- trying to provide that. And then also, if there's something you document that here's the dates I've completed these audits for this month and this month and this month, um, they yeah. like to see that as well. Again, you don't have to show the results or you can redact the results. They just want to see maybe the dates you completed them or the spreadsheet dates that, that you did those internal audits. So really, yeah. they're kind of open to what they'll receive on this. They just, they just need to somehow show that you are doing them and be able to validate
0: that. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Same same experience I've had. It's usually a blank template of whatever audit document you have and show the different data header or the column headers in the elements that you're testing for your contract pharmacy samples. And then maybe it's a, a screenshot of the uh, share drive where all of your monthly audits are recorded or wherever you maybe um, record that the audits are completed um, is enough and um, really not more discussion beyond that. Yep. Yeah, yep. Yeah. All right. Last item for contract pharmacy documentation. This is new for the FY24 data request list. This is 6E, provide a list of all Medicaid fee-for-service bin and PCN numbers that are carved out um, or provides non-340B drugs to patients with Medicaid fee-for-service. So this is new. They're wanting to get information from covered entities around carve-out Medicaid payers.
1: Yeah, yeah, and 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 we're not doing. We probably should have done six and seven together, but I think this works well, and we get to recover seven um, next time, which is more around um, other pharmacies within a covered entity, including in-house retail. But this was an ad, um, which is interesting. So for all of your TPA processes, you do need to pull that bin PCN group number. And they, well, first they don't say group number. I'm still stuck on this. Yeah, they only ask well, for bin and PCN. I like, but but you kind of need the group number granularity to actually get to specific Medicaid because I've seen bin and PCNs that are for both Medicaid and Medicare for the same payer or are, yep. yeah,
0: for the same um, PBM. Yeah, you're going to have, if you're just pulling a list of Medicaid fee-for-service bins and PCNs, you're going to have bin and PCN combinations on that list that are going to be included in your utilization data because those are qualifying under some other group ID that's a non-Medicaid fee-for-service. So it's, it's going to, it could create some confusion. It may be a red herring if they're, Doing a V lookup or screening your data to test for samples that should have carved out that weren't.
1: So I I don't know about you, but I've I've just kind of said, you know what? I think we provide the bin PC and group add, numbers.
0: Add the group IDs yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, So yeah. we've been doing
1: that just for it's because that's that's really what it should be. And I'm still yeah. curious why, and maybe that gets updated in the 2025 DRO. We'll see. Um, yeah. But yeah, definitely a new one. And uh, and here's the other thing: I'll, I'll remind everyone if you've got multiple TPAs. Make sure those lists are the same list or at least, you know, use those lists to combine and collate the right list. Because yeah. if you're missing someone, one that could create some risk for you. And and some TPAs are better at, at those lists than others. And so, you know, utilize your various CPAs and, and come up with one list for everybody that makes sense. I think that's helpful if <laughs> you can tell her. So yep, they're all identical. We upload the same list to everybody versus oh yeah, this list has a hundred, this list has 10. If I'm her so I'm like, uh why? Why does that one have a lot less than the other one?
0: Yeah.
1: When oh, when this no, oh, go ahead. I say one thing too. Fee-for-service only. So that's another question. Well, do we send all the managed Medicaid bin PCM numbers we're excluding, yeah. or do we just do fee-for-service? Because remember, HRSA, even though, yes, I think HRSA wants to go through managed Medicaid, the GAOs kind of told HRSA, so you guys need to look at managed Medicaid. Manufacturers are allowed to look at managed Medicaid. We talked about that with, uh, I think, Lily. Yep. But uh, when it comes to HERSA themselves, they still only focus on fee-for-service. And, and the specific instruction here or the request is fee-for-service bin and PCM numbers that are used yep. to carve out.
0: Yep when when this drl um update was published in the fall I, I remember getting a question where someone asked doesn't all don't all contract pharmacies have to carve out it explain to folks, what's the scenario? It's really uncommon, but there is a scenario where you can carve in your contract pharmacy. What is that?
1: Yeah, so, and it and has been years. That they've allowed it, but there is an allowance. The difference is for you to carve in fee-for-service Medicaid in a contract pharmacy, because it could be your own health system on contract pharmacy, right? So you might be able to do it. Um, it might be a modifier state or, or something like that. But there, you do have to basically submit a request to HRSA to get approval to carve in um, fee-for-service Medicaid um, in your 340B program. In doing so, you actually need your state Medicaid office to participate in that request to show and to list what the requirements are that it's allowed and then what you're gonna do to maintain compliance. And if it all checks out, they will allow you to carve in. And if you ever go into OPACE and pull your contract pharmacy listing, there's actually some columns at the end that almost everyone ignores because they're almost always blank or it says no. For Carving in, and that's what that carving is. So you can actually go and see if there's anyone with fee for service Medicaid carved in for any contract pharmacies. And there are some out there. I have seen it. I've even worked with some clients that have it for, but again, yeah. mostly health system-owned situations. Um, rarely on a true contract pharmacy scenario. Good.
0: Um, I th- oh, it's I was gonna ask about pulling Medicaid uh Contract pharmacy claims, but we're going to get to that when we get through the Medicaid sections. I I thought about that too, right? If you're carving
1: in, what do you have to do? Because that changed this year.
0: Yeah, it did change, but we'll, we'll come back to that again. I think that's it for contract pharmacy documentation. Yeah, we've got everything. Any last words of wisdom around managing the contract pharmacy documentation piece?
1: No, other than if you've got a lot of contract pharmacies, we talked about it, and a lot of amendments, that highlighting can take some time. And, yeah. um, and again, something that we recommend you, we, we do it as part of our annual independent audits, but if you're not doing those or you're working with somebody else and they're not doing them, make sure you're doing that because you, we find a lot, I, I rarely don't find a minor minute things to, to look at there. Um, yeah. it's just, when you've got a lot of contract pharmacies, it's, it's just a ton of work. So take the time to do that so that you're not scrambling in the middle of a hearse audit prep and realizing, oh my gosh, I was supposed to terminate this pharmacy or this isn't listed correctly or, you know, whatever those cases are. So. Um, Make sure you have have all that uh, all that in place.
0: Yeah, it's just another thing like we've talked about already, the trial balance, crosswalk policies and procedures, program narrative. These are the contract pharmacy agreements or the documents that you want to make sure you have ready to go now. So start working on those now, because once you get your HERSA audit notice, you're scrambling to pull six months worth of utilization and purchasing data. You've got a lot of real time data you need to work with. These things should already be ready to go. So.
1: Well, and the other thing is make sure you have all your contracts amendments in one place. Uh, the other issue is sometimes we know they're out there, but they're not pulled yeah. into one location in one folder for for uh, contract pharmacy vendor or a contract pharmacy group. And just having all that lined up and labeled correctly, sometimes you get these names. I'm like, yeah. I don't know which amendment's which. It just says amendment and there's no dates. There's no number. I'm having to open up each one just to figure out, well, which is the newest one? Um, you know, getting those yeah. labeled nice and and neat and so that you can even get to the right one quickly is is really good.
0: Yeah, I've, I've felt, I've seen where some covered entities, the pharmacy department that's managing the 340B team, they'll engage somebody from maybe supply chain or somebody from legal to help kind of staging and organizing the, the contract documents because hospital is going to have contracts with other vendors and have, uh, you know, a process already in place to manage um, contract agreements. So if you can parlay that process into the managing the 340B contract pharmacy documents, that'll save you a little bit of headache. So, all right, Rob. It's good catching up with you. We've knocked out a lot of topics in the DRL. I think when we pick up again, we're going to talk about purchasing, which is another fairly dense section in the HRSA data request list.
1: Well, I tell you what, we we're at booth 611 but you passed two weeks ago, so you probably missed that. <laughs> right. <laughs> Hopefully we saw you there. Right. And, got, and had some chocolates. Uh, oh, yes. I, oh, my uh, goodness. I got to go pick them ca- up.
0: counted some placebo pills at the uh, at the booth.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah, I got to figure out when. By the way, just so everyone knows, I'm the one that goes and picks those up. I'm the mule um, for those Utah truffles. And I ordered them and they were ready. And because I was one of them as fresh as possible, I got to figure out what time they close. I might have to make an emergency run tomorrow.
0: Are they going to be frozen by the time you get them back to San
1: Diego? Nah, nah. They're they're inside the store and I bring them inside and then I just hand carry them. I'm actually. I'm I'm shipping them to Adrian, and because Adrian's going to drive down. Oh, that's
0: right. Yeah, Adrian's going to take them down. Yeah. Are yes. they made in? Is there like a chocolatier? Do they have a store? Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's you yeah. can
1: go like tour it and everything, and then um, yeah. but the, it's only like ten minutes from my house. That's why I go get get them because I don't I don't want to risk shipping them if they, they go somewhere real hot. But um, yeah,
0: yeah,
1: I might have to like pack them in ice
0: and everything. So like, yeah, in D- in DC, I've, I I can remember grabbing a few of the truffles that were like flattened and then they you could tell that they were misshapen along the way so
1: that's why i hand carry them now i hand carry them on the plane i put them in the cool (laughs) overhead i carry them with me i get them i get them to my room i even get in the fridge if i need to put ice on them yeah it's precious cargo all
0: right all right rob sorry for keeping you late here you're the one that's late yeah right all right man i'll talk to you later see you later Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.